0: Hello, and welcome to the Fixing Healthcare podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the Popular New Books of Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. His new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published two months ago. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want more information on the book and a broad range of healthcare topics, you can go to his website, robertperlmd.com. Together, we also host the bi-weekly podcast, Coronavirus the Truth. Our guest today is Don Crane, the president and CEO of America's Physicians Groups. APG is a powerful national voice for physician led medical groups and doctors and independent practice associations. As you will hear, he is a strong advocate for the importance of moving from a fragmented fee for service healthcare system to one that is integrated and reimbursed on a prepaid, capitated basis.
1: This is our sixth season of Fixing Healthcare. In our first season, we brought in nationally recognized leaders. Including Don Berwick, Eric Topol, Ian Morrison, and Zubin Damania, aka Z Dog MD, and we asked them to describe how best to fix the American healthcare system. Their solutions were comprehensive, spanning across the realms of insurance, hospitals, the drug industry, and physician practices. This season, rather than asking for comprehensive solutions. We're going vertical and deep, inviting leaders from each of these areas to come and explain their work, what their organizations are doing to address the current healthcare challenges, the problems they're encountering, and their perspectives on the future. Our first guest this season was Dr. James Madera, the CEO of the American Medical Association, who spoke about independent physician practices. This month our guest is Mr. Donald Crane, the CEO of America's Physician Groups. Welcome, Don.
2: Welcome, Robbie. Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure.
1: Don, APG represents more than 340 physician groups with nearly 200,000 doctors providing care to almost 50 million patients. Let me invite you to offer your perspectives. On the contributions APG is making and your views on how physician groups can solve the healthcare problems of today and tomorrow.
2: Well, glad to do that, Robbie. A couple of further words about APG for the audience. So, you know, indeed, we are a professional association composed of physician groups. And you are right that we're at approximately 340 groups now that employ or contract with about 170,000 physicians. Um, that in turn take care of about 90 million patients across the country. I think we have groups now in 44 states. So we are indeed very much national. And indeed, um, you know, we're in the business of advocacy, have an office in Washington, D.C., one in Sacramento, where our roots are, frankly, in California. Um, and we are also in the business of education, both intramural as we share best practices amongst our members. Um, And then also export the know-how of capitated, integrated care outside of our organization to physician groups around the country that wish to learn this model of care. Um, We view ourselves as leaders, basically the personification of the value movement in America. Like no other organization, we are engaged in Medicare Advantage. We are engaged in Medicaid, managed care, commercial. Uh, coordinated care, uh, the new direct contracted model, uh, and all of the programs and products available. Basically, we operate and do so in a capitated integrated way. That indeed is our, you know, core philosophy. We believe that physician groups should be accountable for cost and quality. Um, We're very much wedded to the payment model, which is prospective where the physician group is paid in advance, uh, per member, per month, a defined amount of money to care for the individual patients, but also the population of patients for a defined set of benefits for a period of time, perhaps a year. This prospective payment creates aligned incentives all through the physician group enterprise where everybody is trying to keep the patients healthy. Let me repeat that. We try and keep the patient healthy. It's a healthcare system, and that is what distinguishes us from what we are really trying to move away, which is fee-for-service, which is basically a kind of a sick care system where doctors and other providers are paid uh, per click to deliver care after the fact um, to patients that are sick. So the more work that is done, the more they are paid. So we're very much wedded to the payment model, but also the, the, the care model, which is integrated where uh, very much primary care centric, but where the physician enterprise includes by contractor, by employment, all of the specialties, but also psychologists, social workers, uh, dietitians, et cetera, et cetera, so that we are providing care to the population across the entire continuum of care in an integrated, very non-fragmented way, and so that characterizes the APG members. Um, you know, we're passionate, as you may even can hear it in my voice, Robbie, about this care model, this payment model that our groups are organized and have the infrastructure and the know-how to do this, because we frankly see it as the, you know, the the best hope and basically salvation for American healthcare, producing lower cost, higher quality greater patient satisfaction, the triple aim that is is often called, but also, as we sometimes now even say, the quadruple aim, better for physicians, frankly, more gratifying, uh, more professional. And then I might even add a fifth domain to it, which is we have the ability to address health disparities and health equity issues like no other model, like fee-for-service can't do. because. Whatever happens to our population of patients, whether it's structural racism, whether it's nutritional inadequacy, uh, et cetera, et cetera, those are of moment and importance to the groups that take risk, as it were, for the health of that entire population. So we have an incentive to uh, eliminate disparities. We have the organizational capacity to do that. We see ourselves. Um, as basically the best vehicle for addressing those issues. And so, you know, you can tell we're proud of what we're doing and we we hope to proliferate this model across the country. We think when we're done with that, probably 70, 80% of the work ahead of us will be accomplished, frankly. So with that, I'll pause, Robbie.
1: So Don, APG's tagline is taking responsibility for America's health. Given the power of insurance companies, hospital systems, and the drug industry, is it realistic to believe that physicians can drive the change?
2: Well, yes. So let me speak to the tagline. Indeed, it is a rather maybe even conceited concept that we would take responsibility for America's health, but that captures who we are in terms of the payment model. When we're prospectively paid for a population, we become responsible for their health and must work within a budget. When we are uh, given bonuses and incentive compensation by achieving various quality measures and improving quality and outcomes, we receive bonuses. So we become accountable for for the quality of the care. So we see ourselves as accountable for cost and quality. Now, there are other players in the healthcare ecosystem. None of them really like physician groups in terms of taking that risk and delivering care. So we're, I think, uniquely able to say that. Now, indeed, your question, I think, hints at issues relating to political power, market power, and all of those indeed are important. We can talk about those in due course, but the way we see our payment model and our care model, yeah, we wish to be responsible for the outcomes we deliver.
1: I believe, Don, you've been the CEO now for 20 years. And at the start of that process, most of the physicians who were employed were employed inside medical groups. Yet today, the majority of physicians are employed rather than a minority, but a lot of them are being employed by health plans and by private equity groups. How is this? impacted America's healthcare?
2: Well, it's a process that is underway. And I think, frankly, Robbie, the jury is out on that question. So indeed, you are right. I think we're looking at the, some of the same statistics, the numbers have moved up and something what on the order of 60% of physicians are in some kind of relationship with a parent organization, whether it's a hospital system or a health plan. And so the sort of Marcus Welby of old, indeed, is a dying breed. We have that issue basically within my own organization, Robbie, and here's how you know we look at it and we treat it, and I would sort of propose it for the rest of America, perhaps. We think the Pentium chip of healthcare delivery is the physician group, right? And so around our board table, for example, we allow only physician groups, each and every one of them wearing their APG hat. We do not allow into our caucus their parents, whether the parent is a health plan or the parent is a hospital organization or a private equity firm, because we feel that the uh, it is the physician group that counts. And we like to pretend, I'm using the word pretend, Robbie, that their parentage doesn't matter. Now, indeed, it does matter. Um, we, we are concerned about the loss of independence of physicians. You know, some half of my members are what are known as IPAs, independent practice associations where the physicians retain a certain amount of, of, of independence, but they enjoy centralized support from, you know, the, 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 the IPA or the MSO, the Management Services Organization. So there's centralized support, data, data analytics, Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so we we find we have a blend there of independence but also centralized support. So I think we're all trying to navigate this new sort of more integrated care where physician groups are indeed well supported by centralized supports but without completely ceding all authority really to non-physicians which is something we don't promote or propose. So hopefully that's a start at answering your question.
1: So over a decade ago, when the Affordable Care Act was proposed by President Obama and approved through Congress, uh, accountable care organizations were seen as powerful forces to be able to improve quality and lower costs. A little over a decade later, they've done a good job of improving quality, but there's been a very mixed report card on the ability to lower costs. From your perspective uh, don why is that what's the problem and what's the solution
2: so i think your question relates mostly to the medicare acos so indeed the affordable care act gave rise to the medicare acos mssp acos and indeed you know the results have been mixed actually that's fairly generous robbie to say mixed with the great majority of the alternative payment models here did not deliver net 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 savings to cms and so i have an answer to that and that i i think the ad answer includes basically difficulties i'll use that word associated with the design of the medicare aco model it remains on a fee-for-service platform um there's open networks there's um you know scant assignment rules so patients aren't even sure sometimes Uh, to which ACO they might be attributed or not, so there's a kind of a looseness in the design there that unsurprisingly has not yielded very good results, but at the same time I say this, Robbie, if you shift your gaze over into other areas, the commercial market or how my members are doing or how they're doing even in Medicaid and so on, there you see, and of course the information is proprietary, and I'm not in a position really to talk about my individual members' profitabilities, but Nobody's gone and solved it. I mean, I think the model where it's well-designed, again, where it's well-designed, closed networks, assignment, lock-in, those kinds of words and so forth, the results are excellent, frankly. Um, Significant improvements in quality, um,
1: significant improvements in cost. Uh, You talk a lot about this movement from FIFA service to capitation, and when I look across the United States, it's not that there's not a slow evolution in that direction, but I think it still represents, when you look at the total dollars, a very insignificant amount, certainly not enough to transform the American healthcare system. How are we going to accelerate this? What's going to make it work for doctors? As you said, in the, in the COVID-19 experience, they benefited from it but people seem to be not embracing it and moving forward as rapidly as you and I might believe. What's it going to take? Is it going to happen?
2: Well, it will happen eventually. Cream floats to the top. I don't know if that's an axiom of physics or not, but I do think that a superior model will eventually win out as it were, but it will have to overcome a lot of entrenched barriers We'll get to that. So it will eventually succeed. Um, my frustration, of course, Rob, and perhaps yours, is that it's moving slower than we would like, frankly. I mean, the Affordable Care Act was, I think, enacted in 2010. MACRA, the Medicare and CHIP Reauthorization Act, uh, which had a lot to do with eliminating the SGR. And, trying to get rid of fee-for-service basically. That was a 2015 law. So at any rate, the progress has been slow and your question is, what is it gonna take? It's gratifying, I think, to watch the private sector continue to move along. And it's gratifying to see capitated integrated care grow within given states and the Medicaid program and so on. I mean, there is a broad recognition that this move to value must happen and it's shared widely. Now, that's a, the reason I emphasize that, because 10, 15 years ago, Robbie, that was not the case. Uh, I used to go back to Washington, D.C. and talk to congressmen and senators and so forth and say fee-for-service was bad and capitation was good and they would look at me like I had two heads. Now, when we're in, in, in Washington, D.C. talking about these subjects, the notion of a capitated payment or something budget-based like capitation is conventional wisdom. I mean, it's kind of commonly accepted we need to move there. But now to zoom in on your question on what is it going to take? Well, if I had a magic wand, it would be federal legislation that would um, pretty much stop the slow walk towards value in original Medicare and make it happen overnight. Now, that's not likely to happen, Robbie, I don't think, because the healthcare doesn't typically evolve in such fast fashion ordinarily. Um, but I think legislation is part of the answer. And then I think we let, need to look to, you know, employers clamoring for more value would be helpful. And we're hearing their voices rise now and asking for that very thing. Um, you know, I would share with you one of my frustrations, Robbie, is that these subjects that you and I are discussing right now are a wee bit esoteric. Right. So I don't know that John Q patient on the street thinks a lot about how his physician or physician group is paid, capitated, fee-for-service, what do they know, what do they care? So indeed, it is a problem for us all that our kind of customer base, the patients, don't fully recognize the value of the model that I'm talking about right now. So if I had a magic wand, I would fix that um, as well. So I'm sharing with you some of the challenges we've got as we try and, you know, moving it a nation that's entrenched in fee-for-service to a far better uh, model. And it's going to be hard. Um, Other nations have done it. You know, Europe's there and most of the other Western developed uh, countries uh, have something in the nature of a a budget-based systems and so on. So we'll get there. If you're sharing my impatience, then we're we're in agreement.
0: Don, at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody viewed doctors and frontline healthcare workers as heroes. Uh, That it admiration has kind of waned a bit due to COVID fatigue, confusing public health messaging, and you know the politicization of the pandemic. And I've heard many refer to the post-pandemic uh, as kind of the second wave where we finally really address the mental health issues, addiction problems, loss of education, economic devastation, et cetera, that happened as a result of the pandemic and it's happening, um, or in its handling. Do you feel we as a nation, from a medical standpoint, are ready to not only address this for patients, but the mental health issues and burnout that many of the frontline healthcare workers are facing while not feeling nearly as appreciated as they once were?
2: Well, I I hear a couple questions in there. No, I don't think we have yet acquired the ability and the know-how and the resources to eliminate burnout. In short answer, I don't think we're, we're close enough to there yet. When I think about mental health, behavioral issues, there again, uh, we're woefully unprepared. So post-pandemic, if you look at the opiate crisis, right, it's actually gotten worse. And these diseases of despair they're now called, right, so addiction and uh, alcoholism and suicide, those trend lines have risen ever higher all during the pandemic. So the situation's actually kind of gotten worse. Now, in answer to your question, my hope is that, you know, we get our nation vaccinated and we put Delta and COVID in the rear view mirror, that we triple down on our efforts to address mental health. And the big sub answer I would give to you on that, Jeremy, is we need to sort of wake up and reintegrate behavioral health issues, mental health issues with medical so in most jurisdictions, California, for example, has a law on the books that requires mental health to be uh, fragmented away from, from, from medical health. And clearly, the two need to be integrated. I mean, physicians frequently remind me that you really can't treat and solve diabetes, for example, without dealing with mental health issues. So I look forward to the day when we integrate behavioral and medical, and I think that recognition that I'm talking about now is uh, upon us. And so I'm looking forward to laws, regulations, and practices that fix that problem.
1: So you mentioned telemedicine as something that happened extensively during COVID-19 with as much as 60 and 70% of doctors' practices in some cases becoming virtual. What are your observations about what we've learned, the challenges that exist, and the future for this virtual medical care?
2: So it happened overnight. I, I like to think about one of my members who was talking about, oh, they had a plan to usher in telemedicine across their whole organization and they've been working on it for over a year and a half, right? And I think many of my groups have been doing because everybody could see that it was a good thing to do but there wasn't like a lot of impetus to do so until one night when we had COVID and across my membership, group after group after group, went to 100% telemedicine, in many cases over the space of a weekend, right? Necessity is the mother of invention. So indeed, um, almost all of their visits went from in-person to telephonic in a very short period of time. Then what we saw, Robbie, is over time, particularly as the social distancing rules and stuff are relaxed, I think the sort of water level has found a more maybe appropriate level. And we've watched telehealth recede into areas where it really looks resilient and permanent, right? Now, so it depends upon different specialties. I mean, there's not a lot of telehealth going on in surgery. There is a fair amount in endocrinology. Depending upon the the, the specialty, you'll get different levels of telehealth. It is now, I think, receded back to, I don't know really where it's at now, maybe 20% of the visits, something in that range is now, that are now telephonic. But it looks durable because though that percentage has come back to this lower number, it looks permanent because it is very much appreciated by patients and physicians. It's incredibly useful in psychiatric visits and other behavioral medicine, it's an important adjunct it looks like it, you know the conventional in-person visits um, saves money, patient satisfaction there's much that's good about it and I think it's going to be with us in the future we've got to work out details how much is it going to you know how much should physicians be paid for? Is it included in risk adjustment There's a lot of wonky kinds of issues that have arisen out of it that have not yet been solved but I think there's no question about it, we're gonna have as a permanent fixture of American healthcare, we're gonna have a significant percentage of our care via um, you know, telehealth, which kind of implies telephone, but I think other remote monitoring and associated technology has now really been given an enormous boost and it's gonna be with us permanently.
1: Donna, as you know, burnout is a major challenge for doctors with 44% reporting symptoms of fatigue, dissatisfaction, lack of fulfillment, what do you believe are the greatest contributors and how is APG working to overcome them?
2: First, I'll just chime in with you that it is really a huge problem. I mean, the volume of the basically cries of kind of despair from physicians has risen year over year and it's at a high pitch right now. So in answer to your question, to my way of thinking, the single biggest cause is the fee-for-service payment model. So meaning no disparagement to anybody, there is references to the hamster wheel. So physicians needing or wanting to make more money, whether it's to put children through um, college or whatever, need to work more in order to make more. So they're on the hamster wheel, they run faster and faster, and they work longer hours, and then they work on Saturday. And indeed, this is, this is a, almost a Sisyphus kind of a model of working more, working harder in order to make more money. That is the nature of fee-for-service. Capitated models, however, are very, very different. It's kind of a team-based practice, keep the patients healthy, and it isn't about doing more work, it's about smarter work and work done in the right site of care, maybe at home, outpatient, not inpatient, et cetera, et cetera. So the payment model makes a lot of difference. So that's part of my answer to your question. The other part then though, Robbie moves into administrative areas. Indeed, you know, physicians not fortunate enough to be, you know, employed by well-staffed and well-resourced groups, you know, they're having to do a lot of administrative work and they're trying to keep up with quality measurement programs that vary from payer to payer to payer. Um, There is a lot of reporting requirements. And so the amount of time they spend in sort of non-patient care has risen year after year and it's burning them out and uh, we need to fix that. And the fix is payment model. And the fix is also support from organized groups that have the infrastructure and know-how to support physicians to relieve them of some of this pretty uh, noxious administrative work.
1: Another big problem is the challenges to primary care. We're seeing less interest. The physicians going into it are feeling increasingly overburdened. They're often feeling burned out. Uh, what does APG see as the best solution to reversing what has been a decline over the past couple of decades? in both the esteem and respect accorded to the primary care specialty?
2: Well, before I propose the answer, let me kind of see you one, raise you one on the
1: problem.
2: The problem is, is bigger than we all know here because really the health status of the nation now is characterized by chronic disease, multiple chronic disease. I think 80, 90% of the spend nationally, certainly in Medicare, is for service related to patients that have multiple chronic diseases, so think diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular diseases, and the like, and those are uh, illnesses, chronic in their nature, that are principally treated by primary care physicians, so at a time where we have this crisis around primary care to which you refer, we have an even greater need for primary care, so we really have a problem on our hands. But the solution lies there as well, because the studies have made it clear that—and I don't remember the precise ratio—but it's the bang for buck ratio. So, for you know, every dollar spent on primary care, you know, there's multiple dollars saved in terms of reduced costs. So it's it's also a primary care is also a quote unquote bargain, if I may use that term, frankly. So that's the backdrop, and in answer to your question, you know. Yeah, you would like to see the fee schedule in Medicare improve such that primary care is better recognized and, and paid for more. And that we get into some very technical issues as to how uh, the fee schedule is constructed. But to race forward to where I think the answer really lies is that when my members, Robbie, and capitated models or paid capitation, and as you as you know very well, as the CEO of Permanent Medical Group, the CEO you, for example, can turn around and pay to primary care doctors far more than what might be going on on the Medicare fee schedule or the Blue Cross you know, uh, uh, fee schedule. And so indeed, a fair number of my groups pay primary care doctors 150 200 250% more than they would find in other commercial fee schedules, and do so because the value of their work is so high, frankly. So, the payment model to which I continue to refer, capitation, that's at the group level. And then the CEO can turn around and pay subcapitation, can pay fee for service, can pay whatever form of compensation makes sense and at what levels make sense. So, this is the opportunity to pay primary care more. To basically re- recognize its value to the system, and that what I just described—that dynamic—is common across the APG membership. So there again, the model, when constructed, is a big part of the solution. Goes on and on. I think we need to be educating more primary care physicians. Um, there needs to be more emphasis on really kind of modern healthcare in medical schools. The curriculum is still very specialty weighted. Uh, heavy. And and so I think there's an an element to to medical education that should be addressed as well.
1: Continuing on what you said, Don, where does the expectations of physicians end and those of society begin when it comes to the areas of health? Social determinants of health, uh, responsibilities of the individual patient to manage their own health, uh, socioeconomic determinants of access. There's a whole series of ways that doctors bear the brunt, but the problems are beyond at least the traditional definition of what doctors were responsible for. And from my perspective, increasingly they're being asked to take on or be held accountable for many of society's shortcomings.
2: Very good question. So my answer starts with advising you what you already know the health status of an individual or a population is thought to be determined maybe 10 at 20 percent most by, by way of medical care. In the main, 80, 90% of the health status of a person or a population is the result of social factors, environmental factors, work factors, genetic factors, et cetera, et cetera. So the expectation of what physicians can do. Needs to kind of conform to the reality of the influencers and determinants of health. So, this is really kind of more recent, I think, learnings that, you know, in order for us to really improve the status, health status of our nation, we're going to need to do much more in terms of social issues, nutritional issues, transactional or transportation, housing. Those kinds of factors really uh, help determine determine this health status of populations. So who then, the question might be, is going to be responsible for those social factors? Up until now, we have this kind of hodgepodge of social agencies and health departments and churches and the like, and it's fragmented completely, and it isn't integrated into medical services very much at all. So What do we do with this? So we can't really expect, I think, an individual physician, a Marcus Welby going through medical school to all of a sudden be responsible for the nutritional needs of all of his patients. Couldn't possibly do that. Who then might do it? So I happen to be of the view, Robbie, that organized physician groups, were they asked to take more responsibility for social factors, social work we'll call it, could indeed do that. They would need probably to be compensated a little more and perhaps a little differently to do that. Um, a good example is in Medicare Advantage, and you know, allowing risk adjustments to include social factors. These are all really, I think, nascent issues that we now need to work out. You know, my I think this is sort of a new topic. My pitch is that physician groups, organized physician groups, are probably best positioned to take on some of these social determinative health issues up to a given point. They're not gonna be able to deal with violence in communities or the existence or absence of playgrounds for children to get some exercise. But there are certain things that are within their reach where they're funding, where they asked to do so. And I would include among that nutritional support for their diabetic population. But whether we give it to physician groups or not, we do need a significant reallocation of american dollars and resource and energy into social determinants and here's what we would want to see happen robbie more money effort and resource goes into things social that will improve the health status of the population such that the medical spend can actually be decreased so as we shift our gaze to europe for example right now We know that in in the the united states we pay about twice as much for our health care and we get results that are about half as good in terms of quality so that's sort of axiomatic and very you know all the public health students know that in europe it's the obverse they spend more on social but they spend less on medical because social yields better results so you know, ultimate results. So we've got, we're kind of, we're turned uh, upside down on this now, and I would hope and advocate that over the course of the coming years and decades, we rectify that imbalance just as we usher in the payment model and care model to which I've I've described.
0: Preventative health is super important. Uh, During the pandemic, we saw just how much more dangerous COVID-19 was people with severe comorbidities. Uh, With the Delta variant now, it seems like the pandemic isn't going to be going away anytime soon. Uh, Why isn't more being done to essentially shout from the mountaintops about eating right and getting exercise right alongside masking, social distancing, vaccines, et cetera, as a way to help prevent severe illness? And, you know, not only why is this not being done, but if you were the nation's health czar and you had a a megaphone to raise awareness on this issue and add focus on it, how would you handle that?
2: So I'll sort of start with the latter question if i were the czar (laughs) you know we'd have a much better diet across the country and we'd have a whole lot more exercise we would do other things in terms of sort of the personal responsibility but i would put diet and exercise at the top food is medicine Um, frankly i think that and this is probably not an exaggeration to say that the american diet is almost toxic For the American population, I mean, you just see what people are eating, and the results—obesity continues to be a problem, and so forth. So, you know, a healthy diet—that's a whole story—and it's obviously controversial. But we know what's unhealthy, and so you know, that which they're buying out of Seven (laughs) Eleven, the the people—we need to fix that. Exercise—everybody's seated; they're looking at their screens, whether it's TV or they're. or their computer, and so there needs to be a whole lot more exercise. If you dealt with those two things perfectly, they were completely dealt with, and everybody had a healthy lifestyle, and then also seat belts and didn't smoke too much and drink too much or didn't smoke at all, our health picture and the spend and the quality and uh, lifestyle would be improved remarkably. So if I were you know, the despot with a magic wand, I would mandate that in a hurry or in some fashion. I mean, I have to salute people that, you know, have tried to eliminate soft drinks and so on by increasing the taxes on them and so on. These sort of half measures are well intended, but indeed, if I was a czar, uh, that's what I would do. There is a call, Jeremy, no one has forgotten that these issues of self personal responsibility are at play. they've been eclipsed basically by the pandemic for a little while now hopefully when we get back on an even keel there will be an increased voice along with an increased awareness that these quote-unquote issues of social of personal responsibility diet exercise and the like will get greater attention and we need probably to learn new ways to incentivize healthy behaviors and disincentivize unhealthy behaviors. And that might be done through insurance design and other programs. So it's a whole area of interest that I think has to be pursued aggressively going forward.
1: Since I published Uncaring, uh, the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, I've had the chance, Don, to be on about 50 other podcasts, including your own. And the most common question I've gotten has been how medical education needs to change. And I've often pointed out that really for up till 2007, if you wanted to carry with you all of medical knowledge, you'd need at least a 50 pound backpack, but the smartphone has now made that possible to carry that into your pocket and being able to stop focusing and testing on memorizing arcane facts and focusing on opportunities to use this new technology is probably the area that I would start for up to me, changing medical education. How do you see it? And what does the APG groups believe needs to be happen to train the doctors of the future?
2: agree with you completely Robbie we're in an entirely different world now in terms of technology and it's moving ever faster i mean just think about artificial intelligence the big databases that harbor so much knowledge which can be tapped digitally via algorithms that you know spit out basically the good information good advice to physicians no single physician could possibly know the totality of information now that's known in healthcare. I mean the state's very obvious, but we've got the technology to support them. So their medical education needs to train them on how to use that kind of technology, frankly, um, because it's come it's coming very fast. I think also medical education needs to train physicians to operate within organized groups in a collegial fashion, team-based practice. It won't be Marcus Welby taking care of all problems. It'll be Dr. Pearl, perhaps supervising a team of, 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 of what it might be called mid levels or extenders, but including a pharmacist and a psychologist and a dietitian, all of the kind of services that are going to be needed to take care of a population that now is bedeviled mostly by chronic disease. And so You know, I think that medical education needs to kind of catch up with technology, it needs to catch up with the new demand, basically, in healthcare in terms of lots of chronic disease, needs to catch up in terms of, you know, the capitated integrated delivery systems to which we've been referring. It it is is not going to be one doc and one office on one street corner in the future and medical education probably needs to speed up to sort of recognize that
1: reality. To that end, Don, if we did as a nation, everything you're describing, changing from fee-for-service capitation, moving more to teams-based care, introducing technology, do you believe like some other organizations that we have a major shortage of doctors in the United States? Or do you believe on the other hand that maybe we have an excess number, at least an excess number, focusing on the healthcare problems that doctors address today?
2: Well, I think there's too few primary care doctors. I will say that, number one. Number two, when we get to the sort of end state to which we aspire, which is truly team-based practice, we will be able to make better use out of the physicians we have, the physician population we have. They will be supervising the work of others to deliver the care. And the seeming shortage of physicians we experience now might be ameliorated significantly when we use physicians correctly doing what they should be doing, supervising others, dealing with the only the, the, the most difficult case. So when we finally get to the point where we've got organized groups using team-based practice, the shortage will be less severe. I would say those are the dynamics. And, and that's probably where I would end. I don't, I don't think that we have too few physicians, but I do know that we're not using them optimally.
0: I think for a while, the nation uh, saw the light at the end of the tunnel when it came to the pandemic. And I think, again, now with Delta, the nation's collective optimism has more or less disappeared. Um, what are you seeing in healthcare as a whole? And maybe that's lessons learned from the pandemic or technology or policy changes that may be coming in the future that you want to share with the patients of America to give them a little ray of sunshine or a little ray of hope about the future of American healthcare?
2: So we should first, again, take heart at the amazing vaccines we have right now. So efficacious, relatively speaking, and so rapidly developed. When you think back to early 2020, January, February, March, we were being told we might not get a vaccine for four years, that we hadn't had an approved vaccine uh, brought to market in less than four years ever before. And in our instance, we now had one within, I don't know how many months it was basically, at high levels of efficacy, at least as a, against COVID. So we should take stock of that and congratulate ourselves and our science uh, that was able to deliver such excellent vaccines. Um, now we have a problem with partisanship and those that don't wish to be vaccinated. And now we have a basically a pandemic of the end vaccinated. And we have a fairly well protected vaccinated population, which gets us all into other issues that I don't think you're after. You're, you're, the balance of your question was, what do I find hopeful about American health care? Um, well, science, for sure. Vaccine, good example. Technology, for sure, many examples. Um, the use of data analytics allows us to know things we never knew before in an instant, and we're only learning how to harness them sort of at the bedside now. So there's lots to rejoice about in terms of technology and science. I'm less delighted with the personal responsibility, which is we just talked about. I'm concerned about the political divide and our ability of our country to enact laws that work for the benefit of all. We seem rather divided, and it seems difficult to do those very things. So those are the concerns, but there's the answer as to what, I, what I'm most hopeful about the future.
1: Last question. Last season, we talked about physician culture. What do you believe we need to keep? And what do you believe we need to evolve?
2: Well, I'll tell you, I, first thing, at least around my world, is we honor physicians. Um, We do, and we feel they should be honored and well compensated. The talk we hear out of Congress about sequesters and reducing physician compensation and that physicians are overpaid just makes my head spin, Robbie. Frankly, we need the best and the brightest. We need to compensate them accordingly we don't, we won't have the best physician workforce in the world, which I think we presently do. But we're going to need to take better care of our physicians. We're going to have to do a better job with burnout. We've got to fix that. We've got to fix that fast. You know, I look forward to a world where physicians find satisfaction in their work. And, um, you know, I think also where we bend the trend into the right direction. I mean right now, you know, it's, it's shameful where the United States is in terms of population health. So we have the best research, some of the best specialty care. There's no question that if you have a, you know, a, an organ transplant, you're going to want it done somewhere in the United States. Where we really stumble is in the population health statistics, some of them Uh, You know, I think about infant mortality and and maternal mortality and so on, where we're basically on a level of a third world country. And that is because we really haven't addressed social determinants in an intelligent way and kind of uh, integrated them into medical care. So we've got a lot of work ahead of us, Robbie. I think we have a lot of work.
1: Don, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listening audience?
2: I would just, again, you know, as we really try and re-transform our system, I would remind us all that it's, you know, patients have relationship with physicians, not with health plans and not even really with hospitals. So the core of our system is the patient-physician relationship. Those patients those physicians do best when they're operating in an organized group where they're supported by others, you know, and whether it's nurses or nurse practitioners or data analysts, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we 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 think we do know what works best. And so, my uh, hope and uh, uh, I guess request or prayer would be that we uh, proliferate this capitated, integrated, organized group model across the country just as quick as we can, and we will be far better off for having done so. That would that's how I would conclude, Robbie.
1: Thank you so much, Don. You've given us a lot to think about and a powerful, optimistic view of what might happen in the future. So thank you very much for coming today.
2: My pleasure, my pleasure.
1: Robbie, what do you think about what Don said? Jeremy, I concur with Don that the current FIFA Service method of physician reimbursement, one that rewards volume, not value, is broken, and it's a source of major problems doctors, patients, and the nation. I believe that when physicians are paid a defined payment to take care of a population of patients, not only does the care provided improve, but also the physician culture evolves. More specifically, doctors become increasingly focused and committed to prevention, avoidance of complications from chronic disease, patient safety, convenient access through telemedicine, and addressing medical issues appropriately the first time. When done well, it can increase quality by 20% compared to fee-for-service reimbursement models, raise patient satisfaction 20% higher, and lower costs 20% below the fee-for-service alternatives around it. We won't make American healthcare once again the best in the world until we make the transition. We hope
0: you enjoyed this podcast and will tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on physician culture, you can find it at robertperlmd.com. Congratulations, Robbie, on the success of your book. I know it will stimulate discussion and debate and improve healthcare for all Americans. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at FixingHealthcarePodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Corr. Have a great day.